0: Welcome to Gathering Gold, this is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. In today's episode, we are talking about separation anxiety. And every topic we talk about is important to me, but I think that this one in particular is a very... hmm. A very tender topic for me. Hmm. Separation anxiety has been this huge force in my life and had a big impact on me from a really young age. So I can remember having separation anxiety from the time I was probably three or four, like not wanting to go to preschool. Hmm. Um, And I have these really vivid memories all throughout elementary school of. Like sitting in my classroom and in that last hour of school, watching the clock tick closer to three o'clock and I would start to get this pit in my stomach and sometimes I would even be teary eyed and I would just start praying Hmm. like, please, God, please bring my mom here safely please don't let my mom die on the way to get me in a car accident. And this was every day, <laughs> like every day of my life. Um, and then it continued into middle school and it even continued into high school. And in its own way, it continued into college, not to the same degree, it wasn't always as intense but it still lingered and it kept me from a lot of experiences so when i was in elementary school i felt really anxious about going to friends houses for playdates and i had a really hard time with sleepovers and i i never joined the the rec softball team in 4th grade even though i really wanted to because i just didn't want to be away from my parents and my mom in particular for all of those practices and games. And I never auditioned for the musical in high school because I just didn't want to be away from home and my family for that long after school. And in college, then I I kind of pretty quickly started to transfer that anxiety onto my college boyfriend once we started dating. And so I would have this like dueling separation anxiety where every time a semester started or ended, I was having to either leave my boyfriend when I went back home or leave my parents when I went back to college. And I I had so much anxiety around those transitions because I mm-hmm. felt anxiously attached both to my boyfriend and still somewhat to my family, my parents, mm-hmm. my home. mm mm-hmm. And as a young adult, I've had to navigate that, still like lingering traces of it with my family of origin and with my partner, Martin, who we've had long periods of long distance and he has a job that takes him away for longer periods of time, like maybe two weeks at a time. And um, he's a wilderness firefighter. So it's very last minute, like, oh, there's a fire and he has to go. So it's been quite a journey for me, and Mm. I'm definitely obviously not in the same place I was when I was seven years old, but the traces are still there. The force and the pull still appears sometimes. I still notice it in myself, and Mm. I think it's something that doesn't just affect children, it affects adults too, and Mm. I'm really curious and interested to hear about some of your experiences with this, Cheryl.
1: Yeah, and I will share those, but I want to pause for the tenderness and the young you and the young all of us and for everybody listening who had separation anxiety, has separation anxiety. um, The feeling I have, Listening to you, Victoria, is just wanting to hug that seven year old, you. And I know you've done a lot of your own healing around your younger parts. Um, but I think we all have that part of us. I think it's part of it is human nature that we are social animals and we depend on the tribe and the family and the community. And for highly sensitive people, that possibility of separation and severance is like death. And we can imagine into that because that's part of the highly sensitive brain is to imagine all the horrible, catastrophic possibilities. Um, And as a child... Just thinking about you every day, sitting there, sometimes tears in your eyes, terrified, really. Just terrified that you would be alone, that something would happen to your mom. So... I also have very early memories. My first memory is um, of when I was one, and we used to go to a family camp every summer on the campus of UC Santa Barbara. And my parents would like to do their own thing. That was their time to, it was like camp for them, for adults, so My mother was doing her artwork and my dad was playing tennis and my brothers were doing their thing and I was put into was basically daycare Um, and it was called Small World. And I have a very vivid memory that I'm sure will forever be emblazoned into my soul, which is standing at the gate. It was like a metal gate. And screaming to be let out and feeling like I was going to die and like I was in jail and I had to get to my mother and my mother wasn't coming. Um, And it was agony. I was in agony. And so the next year when we went, I have to imagine that the people who ran Small World let my mother know that I was in agony. And the next year when we went, my mother brought with us, um, brought Maria, who was our care, my caregiver, and I was deeply attached to, deeply bonded with. And she came and was in Small World with me, I think, for part of the day. And of course, I was fine because... Well, maybe not, of course. For me, separation anxiety is directly linked to connection. And if I have one connection, if I'm somewhere with a friend, if I was somewhere with a friend, if I was there with Maria, um, I was fine. You know, it didn't have to be my mother. So cut to maybe a year and a half later, I went to a very, very early preschool. I think I was two and a half or just under three. And I don't remember having separation anxiety there um, for whatever reason. I don't know. I can only assume that I felt some sense of connection when I was there. It was a Jewish preschool and I loved it. And it spoke to my soul. And my guess is, my hypothesis looking back is that Um, I felt connected to the program, to the the teachers. Um, I don't remember feeling particularly connected to the kids, but I remember feeling connected to God. And God was not a word that was spoken in my childhood house, but it spoke to me deeply. And so perhaps that was the connection that I felt there that saw me through that pre-preschool. And then when I was just under four, I was sent to early kindergarten. And that was another horrible, horrible, horrible memory of watching my mother walk away and me just collapsing and crying. And the crying as a child where it feels like you're going to die because you lose your breath you're crying so hard. Um, and I had my baby blanket with me, Bebis, who I wrote about on Instagram a couple of weeks ago. And Bebis came with me. And I feel like Bebis kept me alive, like <laughs> just got me through those initial days, weeks, however long it took for me to make enough connections. Um, I always sought out teachers. I was definitely a teacher's pet. And I, and part of it, I think, was because I knew I needed that. I needed that kind of connection I needed to feel special I needed to feel like I had a place in somebody's heart um, and then I met my two best friends that were my best friends all the way through elementary school and then I was fine totally fine um until I had to go to a friend's house which is interesting because I definitely had a connection if it was you know my best friend Elizabeth at the time but I couldn't I couldn't do it I couldn't get through the night. There were many nights where I went downstairs and asked um, for my parents to be called, and somebody would come pick me up, and I would, and I would go home. Um, now, looking back on that now, I think that's just so little. I was just so little. Why would a six-year-old be okay? A highly sensitive six-year-old be okay? sleeping away from her home. I wasn't. I wasn't okay. It was too early for me. I did I never loved being at friends' houses. I never loved sleepovers. I had I mean I could go on and on. So it was for me it was intermittent. It was not straight through childhood and adolescence. And then as an adult, you know, I had it going to college. It was horrible. The first few months I wanted to come home every single weekend and I did because I was only an hour from home and then eventually i adjusted and then i would say once i met dave and something got secured in terms of attachment and home and d- deep home um i don't i can't recall feeling it really in the last 20 plus years um although i haven't really tested it because i haven't really gone away i mean i've been away by myself and i, I miss home but it's not it's not that same feeling hmm so interesting because
0: before we started recording this evening i was just taking some time to sit and reflect and I really like put myself back in the feeling of being in my classroom or on mm. Sundays I would be at CCD and my dad was the one who would bring me, you know, drop me off and pick me up. And I was just remembering that feeling of like the last 10 minutes and all the anxiety and the feeling of um, walking with the big crowd of kids like out the classroom, down the steps. Um mm. And then looking for my dad. And my dad is this like six three <laughs> tall mm-hmm. guy. And he always, you know, wears a baseball cap. So I'd just be looking for my tall dad in his blue baseball cap. And like I can feel the tears in my eyes now. Mm-hmm. Like the relief I would feel that, like, there's my dad mm-hmm. and he's alive and he's okay. And just, you know, running over and taking his hand. I don't know why. Like it still mm. gets me. And what's so interesting is with Martin, because he has this job where he leaves for these long stretches and very suddenly, and I never actually really know when he's going to leave and when he's going to come back. Mm-hmm. It's been this really interesting experience because. It's like kind of the best thing for me <laughs> in some ways. I don't think forever, but it's been a good thing because he always comes back and mm. he's always there for me emotionally too, which is really helpful and um I just had this memory when I was sitting there like reflecting before the recording of a few years ago when he was living out in Montana and I got into a minor car accident, and I was fine physically, but I was just kind of shaken up. Mm-hmm. And a day or two later, um, at the time, I was living by myself, house-sitting for someone for a few months, and I pulled into the driveway one day, and Martin was sitting in the driveway, hmm. like had just surprised me and come. Mm-hmm. And it was like that feeling of seeing my dad. mm Mm -hmm. and I just collapsed in tears of relief and love
1: I'm wondering if you'd be willing to slow down and drop into that moment because it sounds alive for you right now with the tears mm-hmm. that you can even feel now and just to be curious about exploring what and you're exploring from your body that moment oh, there's my dad I thought he might not be there the relief the love Oh, there's my mom. And there she is. Yeah. There's something so primal, I think. And I've heard this in my clients, so I know we're in important and archetypal realm. It's not just about your family. This is the highly, highly, highly sensitive child who lives on that razor's edge of the deepest love and the deepest fear of loss and what it was to endure that daily and your parents who you love so much
0: yeah that's just the word like It just feels, I mean, in that most tender place, it just feels like love. Like, it just feels like so much love and then so much fear of loss. Yes. And I think I described it to you, like, leading up to this as almost kind of like love choking on its own breath. and I, I think the other piece of it and the piece that is more of the distortion that creates the kind of never ending cycle is the the sense of threat the sense that the world is so dangerous the sense of just taking in all this sti- stimulus and coming to the most catastrophic conclusion. Yes. Those feel equally true. Like there's the deep love, the deep fear of loss, and then scanning the horizon and just seeing threat after threat after threat. Yes. I'd be walking to or from the school bus stop and thinking I was going to get kidnapped, you know, <laughs> looking over my shoulder. hmm Or when I started staying home alone for the first time, like convinced someone was going to break in. Mm-hmm. And I can look back now and realize I was so lucky to grow up in a really safe place. Like those things would have been so rare. Um, but in my mind, like it was just a matter of time. It was imminent, you know,
1: Yes, and what comes to mind is the generations upon generations of this fear of loss, the highly, highly sensitive person also sometimes prone to what we call OCD, how the world has been unsafe for most of our human history, how much of that, of that um, imprint gets passed down, and how it was the job of the highly, highly sensitive person in the community to scan the horizon, to check, check, check the perimeter, check for danger, check the locks and the stoves, the equivalent back then. And so even though you grew up you know, in the 90s in suburban safe New Jersey, the chances of you being kidnapped were extremely tiny. It's It's this intersection of genetic code, historical code, temperament, and then all of that being passed down. And so... You absorb the mindset, the world is not safe. Death could happen at any moment, which it can, but it's much less likely here where we live, right? And we're so lucky. But even 100 years ago, mortality rates, 200 years ago. So when we go back into our history as humans... I think it brings a great deal of compassion, not only to ourselves, but to our parents and our grandparents and anyone who, you know, was, is, is, was living with that mindset that the world is not safe. Danger can lurk around any corner. I could die. You could die, right? A black plague could come through and, and kill 80% of your family. Like that, that was reality. And so that peace still lives. It still lives. It doesn't just get erased in one or two generations. It takes longer than that. And I think what's
0: interesting is that I did have a ritual because I would pray, you know, like I had my little inner ritual, which I thought Mm -hmm. would help me control the outcome.
1: Yes, but you were praying for a specific outcome. Please let my mom be okay. Right. Please let her not die. Right. It's not it's what we learn of prayer, but it's I don't think it's I don't think it's true prayer. Right.
0: And I I just think that, you know, that type of ritual or that type of compulsion mm-hmm. takes the place of actually A sense of self-efficacy, a sense that I can handle things, and a sense of connectedness. I'm not alone. Yes. I was thinking about the fairy tale of of Hansel and Gretel, and Mm -hmm. of course, it's a story about two little kids being left in the woods by their parents and ending up at a witch's hut um you know there's there's a lot of separation anxiety in the story because they are left intentionally by their parents who say that who who don't tell them that they're going to leave them Mm -hmm. and the kids are just trying to find their way back home back to their parents and they do and what's kind of interesting about the story is i was just kind of poking around reading different interpretations and some people were saying like it is kind of a story of individuation and kids Mm -hmm. Learning that they can handle certain things and using mm-hmm. their their own abilities to get mm-hmm. back home. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a super traumatic <laughs> story, fairy <Very> tale, <detailed. laughs> but they do get back and they do it with mm-hmm. their own like ingenuity, and I think that's a big piece of it is feeling like you can handle things, and so for me, just not. I just remember like all throughout school, like teachers would say to me, you just need to have more confidence in yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you know, you have these abilities, you just don't know that you do. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was a big factor and still is sometimes. It's just like kind of underestimating myself. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I do think that developing a sense of, Resilience and just abilities is an important piece of moving forward.
1: Yeah. This memory keeps coming to mind as we're talking. Um, When I was eight, I don't know how this happened, but my parents decided that I was old enough to take the bus home from school. (laughs) The public bus. Wow. (laughs) Not a school bus. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified. And it wasn't just a school, a public bus that picked me up right in front of my school. So I went to this school called um, UES, University Elementary School. And it was on the campus of UCLA in Los Angeles. And because it was a research elementary school. Um, And so in order to get to the bus stop, I had to walk across the entire campus of UCLA. It is an enormous campus. And yeah, there's like 30,000 people <laughs> who go there. And it's gigantic. And, you know, this is long before cell phones. I, I had no map. I, every day I would set out with my backpack. And sometimes I'd have a friend with me and sometimes I wouldn't. And it felt like... just a miracle that I ever made it to the bus stop because everything looked confusing. I don't have a great sense of direction. And somehow I would make it to the bus stop and then I would get on the bus. And then it was like a 45 minute bus ride, you know, stopping at all the stops with like regular adults getting on the bus. Um, But when I think back on my eight-year-old self, I'm like, you go girl. Like Mm -hmm. how, how rad that I somehow did that. I was super scared, but I did it every single day. And then eventually the school, I think realized that that probably wasn't the best idea and they arranged it so that the bus picked us up right outside the school. So I didn't have to do that for very long. Um, but I can only imagine that it, it did impart a sense of confidence um, and a sense of independence. And it makes me think about how little trust parents have in their children these days to be safe. Um, and Dave and I are just as guilty of this as everybody else. I know that we, our children are growing up in a world where they don't have the same freedom. They don't have the same independence because we're also scared of kids getting kidnapped because of one news story or two new, whatever it is. Um, when in fact, statistically speaking, our children are more safe now than they were in the seventies when I was growing up or the eighties, whenever that kid got kidnapped, that it's not, our fears around safety are not commensurate with the actual statistics of safety. And yet we have not raised our children with that same level of freedom. And so of course there's more fear. I have no doubt that Dave and I have injected a certain amount of that fear into our kids. Luckily, they've had enough other good experiences um, that they're not weighed down anymore by their separation anxiety. Um, For the most, I mean, Everest, not at all. And Asher has been quite triumphant in this area lately but it speaks to this point victoria of you know the parents role in transmitting the belief that the world is not safe and you are not capable um and i think that that's more present now than ever and i don't say that to blame any parents again we've 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 done the same thing. And especially as two highly sensitive parents where Dave and I can see danger at every corner, we do have that mind that's scanning every pot. Oh, don't do that. Oh, wait, that could fall. Oh, wait. Oh my gosh. You know, like that's been a part of our parenting and we've worked hard to not let it be the dominant message, but it's absolutely been in there. It's in the mix.
0: Yeah. And I, I was kind of digging around and just reading into some research on separation anxiety and some of the different causes and correlations, and there's definitely, like you named earlier, there's a genetic component. Mm-hmm. And and there is, for some people, there actually is a traumatic experience early in yes. life. There is a, a parent dying or or something, a traumatic separation that triggers it. But I also read about something that I I thought was really interesting that connects to what you're saying, which is sometimes in a family there being this culture of using avoidance as a valued problem-solving technique. Mm. And so that that avoidance is driven by a belief that negative feelings are dangerous and we should just preempt them before they even Mm – arise and and the avoidance leads to more overprotective and over controlling behavior. Yeah.
1: It's such a fine line between honoring where your child is at and what their capacity is and then pushing them just outside their comfort zone and imparting the message of confidence and belief you can do this, you are stronger than you think, in the right timing, right? Tuning into your child to know what would be too much, what would cause more trauma, pushing them out of the nest too early before they have their wings and then they just plummet and fall. We don't want that. Um, So it's, it's a really tricky dance as a parent to know where that line is. Um, certainly if you're a parent who lives in fear and hasn't done your, enough of your own inner work, um, to start to shift that belief that says the world is a fundamentally dangerous place, you're going to impart that to your children. But I also don't want parents hearing this, especially those of you, a lot of you listening have young children, to think that you have to be somehow perfectly healed or beyond all of those fears. You don't. That's not possible. But to just watch, watch your own reactions and attempting always, and this is one of the the longstanding pieces of work around parenting is to separate your own story from your children so that you can see your child as they are without overlaying your own unworked stuff onto them. And then the belief of you can't do this. The world is too scary. You're not strong enough. So there is this dance, which is, it is a tricky dance for parents. Um, And having had two children having, I have two children who are highly, highly sensitive, have both had separation anxiety at different stages. Um, but our younger Asher had pretty intense, I'd say as bad as it gets separation anxiety for many, many, many years. And he didn't start out that way. We, he, as a baby toddler, we used to have a babysitter come um, when I was working and seeing clients, and she was so lovely, and she would take our boys and they would go out into the world and they would go to museums and they would go to parks, and that was for years, and he was a hundred percent totally fine. Um, and then, when he was almost four, we went to Disneyland. and I'm sharing this story also because you mentioned that there might be a traumatic event, like, the death of a loved one, for highly, highly sensitive kids. The traumatic event might be so what we would call tiny, but in the soul of a sensitive child, it registers as trauma. And It's an important piece, I think, to share because I think it's one that's often overlooked. I often have clients come to me and say, I had a really loving childhood. I don't understand. And then we go into these micro moments where sheer terror took over. And that's what happened to Asher. We were at Disneyland and a group of teenagers walked between him and us, and he couldn't see us for probably a half a second, maybe one second tops. And that was it. In that second, he was in so much terror that we were gone forever, that he wasn't going to be able to find us. I actually remember moments like that when I was a child also, of not being able to see my parents or find my parents, um, possibly at Disneyland also. And all over Disneyland, they have these signs, Lost Child Center, like children get lost there. And he wasn't reading at the time, so that wouldn't have registered, at least consciously. Maybe there was a corresponding photo or image or drawing or something like that, but we didn't really know what happened in that moment because for us it was just a fraction of a second and then we were right there and then we held his hand and we moved along. But when we came back home to Colorado, he developed severe separation anxiety. He could not be away from us, even like if I had to go to the bathroom, like he came with me Um. So it was intense, and we worked with it for many, 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 many years, years and years, and did all kinds of tools, techniques, EMDR, therapies, um, desensitization, and slow – we, everything we could possibly think of. Nothing was making a dent. Any class he took, we had to stay there. And we did, and we did stay. Um, And so we, we were okay with that. And we just knew. We knew that he didn't have it in him yet to be able to tolerate the separation. And then it was the pandemic, and he was supposed to start school for the first time. The rest of the world is homeschooling for the first time. We had homeschooled all the way through and now my kids are going to school. And we really had no idea how this was going to work. He had never been away from us at all. Um one of us. Well, is that true? I think no, maybe he had stayed with Everest. He was okay with Everest a couple times. Um and so we had an agreement with the school that he would go just for half a day to start. And I would wait in the car in the parking lot, which I did. And so I spent many hours <laughs> very uncomfortable in my car, but I was I was fine with it. I knew it was what he needed. Um mainstream parenting model would say that's coddling, just let him go, let him cry. We never did any kind of crying it out in any situation, from sleep to separation. And he came into the car the first day, halfway through the day, and he said, I want you to stay tomorrow, but then the next day I'm going to stay the full day. And maybe you can just stay close in the neighborhood, like go for a hike. This was remarkable, right? There was some sense of safety that he felt in the school with his advisor. The first couple of weeks of school were just orientation. He was with the same advisor that he's still with sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. His name is Pete. He is one of our angels for sure, no doubt. And he felt safe. He felt safe with Pete. He felt safe in the group, in the tribe. Asher, like I think many highly sensitive kids, and the, the next layer, the highly, highlys is a, he's a puppy pile kid. Like he, he is, he is at his best in, when he knows where the group is, when he knows, you know, like a dog, like he just has to know where his people are. And so there was something in, there was something in that community environment and experience And his school is also a very, very small school. So it was big enough where there was community, but not so big that it was overwhelming. And the school was just wonderful. I never felt even a minute of judgment that I was sitting in my car for what ended up being two or three days. I don't remember exactly how many days it was, but it was sometime in that first week where he said, I'm okay, you can go. And it really was remarkable. And from that point on, he was fine. He has gone to school every day, sixth grade, seventh grade. Now, the one piece where he didn't do was this school travels a lot. And it's part of their educational model. It's, a, it's an experiential educational model. And so they go out into the world a lot. And he was not ready for that. And so he missed the sixth grade camping and then at the end of 6th grade they have something called May term where they go away for a longer and they do an in-depth study on one particular topic he missed the end of 6th grade May term he missed the 7th grade orientation camping trip and then it was time for 7th grade May term and this was just a couple of weeks ago and so in the couple of months leading up to it we started to talk about May term and i very very strongly knew he was ready for this, even though he's never spent a night away from home. He'd never spent the night at a friend's house or at a family members, but I just, I knew he could do it. And there was something I was reading in him that I knew he knew he could do it. And the school reached out and said, how can we support him? We really want this to happen for him. They were absolutely lovely. Um, And we talked about strategies and we had a a pre-trip meeting. And at some point he said, I'm going to go. And he vacillated for a few weeks. I don't think I can do it. I can't do it. It's too hard. It's too scary. It's too far. It's too long. It's four nights. They went down to um, New Mexico, which is about a seven-hour drive. And he vacillated and then he committed. And when Asher commits, he commits. That's it. He as very strong willed in both directions. But when he commits, he commits and he said, I'm going to do it. Um, and Dave and I held our anxiety in check. And all we did was communicate to him. You absolutely can do this. We have so much faith in you. We know you can do this, and you're going to be with Joy, the instructor. You have a connection with her. She loves you. She already said she's going to be like a second mother. So we put a lot of pieces in place, um, making sure that, well, the other pieces that he, he has friends now at Watershed, and this is huge. He didn't feel connected to these kids in sixth grade, but he feels connected to them enough now that he could go and share a room and share a tent. A couple of the nights we're camping. And so he was terrified leading up. He was really scared. Maybe not terrified. He was really scared. The night before, he curled up with me. We talked it through. I was watching his self-talk the whole time leading up. Okay, so what am I really afraid of? Okay, I'm afraid I might get overwhelmed, but I can handle if I get overwhelmed. I'm afraid I'll feel homesick, but it's not going to last. I can get through it. Really wise self-talk showing up in him. I hadn't seen it before in quite that way. So even leading up to to it, it was this initiation experience. It wasn't individuating experience which I think is embedded in separation anxiety. It is a call to access your own inner parent. And that's not age specific. It's the part of you that knows you can handle life, right? That you will be okay, even if it's hard and it will be hard. And so we did a ritual the day before we went down to the creek We found a stone. I held the stone all day. I told him, I'm putting all my love in this stone. Keep it in your pocket. When you need to feel my love, you just touch the stone. I'll be right with you. We're not actually ever away from you. We live in your heart always. And Dave and I each wrote letters. Everest gave him something. He gave him a compass. And so we we ritualized. I drove him to school that Monday morning. They had to take COVID tests. And I said, Asher, maybe you'll test positive. You won't have to go. And he he said, I do not want that to happen. I am going on this trip. It was so much strength in him. So much strength. The kid is strong. He is so strong inside. So much strength in there and courage, and commitment, and perseverance, and determination. And we just kept reflecting back all of those qualities that he has in spades that was ruptured. Maybe it would have been ruptured by something else, but it got ruptured at least even in his, in his narrative by that moment at Disneyland. But I think it was that. And so he went and... He actually had permission. The kids aren't allowed to bring their phones on these trips, which I think is fantastic, but he had permission, but he did not use it once. He wanted to do it. He wanted to know he could do it without his phone, without texting or FaceTiming with us. Um, he, He was homesick. It was hard at times, and then there were good times. And he reached for joy and she was there for him. And they got through. I still haven't even had the follow-up with her really because I don't know that I need to. He he came back, left on a Monday, came back on that Friday. We were both crying when we saw each other. It was very emotional. He was dirty, his lips were chapped. It was an init- it was a true initiation. No. And we came home, and we just kind of talked and processed, all three of us, because Everest was away on his trip. He still is. Um, and it, Dave and I were both checking and assessing, for tra- was it trauma? Is he okay? But no, there was no, and I knew in my bones that that was not going to be the case. And not only that, there was, it was not trauma. There was a strength and a resilience and a flexibility and a maturity that I saw in Asher almost right away when he came home that grew in him as a result of pushing outside of his comfort zone with enough. Inner strength and knowing, not again, not from being pushed out. He chose a hundred percent. He chose from an internal knowing of readiness. I am ready to do this. I am 13. He had just turned 13. And I'm 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 going to do it. And he did. I'm so proud of Asher. I know.
0: (laughs) It's so funny because I texted you that I was channeling Asher because a few days after he went on his trip, I drove down about three hours south of me for my friend's bachelorette weekend. Mm -hmm. And it was two nights. It was not a long trip. But because of COVID, like I haven't driven that far by myself in years. I haven't gone on a trip without Martin or been overnight somewhere without him without either him or being at my family's house, you know mm-hmm. in a couple of years. and the first night I felt that homesickness and that yearning that like I want to be in my bed I want to be with Martin. I want to be at my family's house. Yes and I thought of Asher, you know like I yeah. borrowed. Yes. His courage. And I thought of my younger self who also had that determined streak. Like Mm. I would resist tooth and nail for as long as I could. But once I made the decision that I wanted to do it, I would get that determination. And it didn't happen with everything, but with certain things, you know, I managed to. To find that strength sometimes. And it's kind of interesting how we ebb and flow and take steps forward and back. And Mm. like, it's interesting how the older I get, the more I have to remember certain qualities I had. Like, I think what's interesting is in some ways, having more control when you become an adult can. Help to ease some anxiety, for me anyway. Like once I was able to drive and I could drive myself mm-hmm. away from places I didn't want to be anymore and go home when I wanted to, you know, Shoot. that gives you a, yes. a certain control, right? Yes. And as an adult, like I can just – I don't have to be forced to do gym class or take a math <laughs> test. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there's all these things that I can just very naturally and easily avoid by yes. – by the nature of being an adult now. And then certain situations will arise and I'll be like, oh, there's there's like a tender spot here or there's resistance or there's like a muscle that I haven't been working. Mm-hmm. And actually my younger self, like how did she do gym class every day in front of her peers? Like how did she get on – The plane to go do a semester in London that Mm -hmm. time, or Mm -hmm. you know, how did she go to college when, when like away from home and only went home the first weekend and then Mm -hmm. stuck it out?
1: (laughs) Um, How did she walk across a college campus as an eight year old without a phone or a map? (laughs) (laughs) That is an amazing, amazing tale. What? But I love what you're saying, Victoria, and I think that um, it could be a good place to, to, to close out because what I want to share is this idea of borrowing strength and that like all the highly sensitive people of the world, knowing that we all struggle in these very similar ways, that Asher has taken strength from you and you were taking strength from him, which is so, I mean, it just warms my heart to no end because I love you both so much and your cousins. Um, But that we are all in this highly sensitive community related, we are all kin and that what you're saying now is so important that as an adult, it's so easy to not push ourselves because we don't have to. And so the tendency is for our world to become smaller if we let it, right? But you pushed yourself that weekend and you drove those three hours and you stayed and it was hard being an introvert and not knowing everybody. And, and these are the ways that we, we do have to. We do have to push ourselves as adults because it's not built in, right? I mean, for some people, it, it, it is built in in certain ways if, you know, in your job or whatever. But for a lot of people, we do have a lot more control and choice than we did when we were children. Um, and so how to, how to keep taking the next step? even when it scares us, even if we might have homesickness and separation anxiety, right? And one of the ways is to imagine, you know, imagine Victoria and imagine Asher and imagine, you know, strong, young you, that part of you that, that is determined, right? That does persevere, that lives in all of you. I know it does. Right, we talk a lot about the sort of challenges of being a highly sensitive person, and we talk about the gifts in terms of intuition and creativity and spirituality. But there is a real strength in highly sensitive people, um, and it can come out sometimes as stubbornness or resistance. But then, walking through that, there is an incredible fierceness and fire and determination. And that's how we keep growing through these challenges and growing into, you know, um, into ourselves that are not burdened down with the worry, with the anxiety, and with the fear.
0: Yeah. Oh, there's so much to say, but we have to end sometime, don't we? (laughs) I guess (laughs) eventually. (laughs) That was a beautiful way to close. I think that that reminder, especially because I think that separation anxiety can feel particularly shameful. I mean, all Mm. sorts of types of anxiety can feel shameful, but there's something about even for a child and then especially as an adult. Yes. There's a particular like what you miss your mom? Like she's down the street, you know, or mm. what you you know, you're feeling that anxious about your partner being gone, like, you know. Mm. And so I I think the reminders of compassion and the reminders of calling upon the inner parent and calling upon the inner strength while honoring the deep love, the deep yes. fear, and, you know, reframing those cognitive distortions. You know, one gift of getting older is seeing, oh, I did this so many times and mm-hmm. I got through it and I came home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just taking all of that moving forward is really Mm -hmm. helpful and really powerful.
1: Yes. So beautifully said. Thank you, Victoria.
0: Thank you, Cheryl. Hmm. If people want to find more of you and your work online, where should they go?
1: My website is conscious-transitions.com and I'm on Instagram at wisdomofanxiety.
0: And you can find me over at my other podcast, Perennials, or on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. And if you are enjoying Gathering Gold, please subscribe, rate it, review it, share it with a friend. And if you're really enjoying, you can join us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Gathering Gold. You can sign up for a membership and you'll have access to bonus episodes and you can ask us questions and comment, um, talk to us and other gathering gold patrons. And we have our first virtual meetup coming for our meetup member tier May 22nd. Woo-hoo. Thank you for listening.